0: I'm Paige Smith, and you're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement, and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil waututh peoples. This week, we are joined by Laura Marks, a media arts and philosophy scholar and professor in SFU's School of Contemporary Arts. Today, our host, Anne Jo Hall and myself speak to Laura about her research interests. From experimentalism and aesthetics in Arab cinema, to the unfolding of artistic practices, to the environmental impacts of streaming video and making 4K unfashionable with the Small File Media Festival. I hope you enjoy.
1: Welcome to Below the Radar. We're excited to have Laura Marks, uh, professor in the School for Contemporary Arts at SFU. Welcome, Laura. Great to be here. And I'm also here with uh, Paige Smith, a graduate of SCA from the film program. Welcome, Paige. Hi. <laughs> uh so Laura I've got tons of questions to ask you but I was going to start with uh one of your recent books uh Hanan al-Cinema Affections for the Moving Image that came out with MIT in in uh 2015 I'm wondering if you can
2: talk a little bit about uh that book Yeah well, that was the product of uh Many years uh, working on experimentalism in Arab cinema, you know, starting from starting from the mid nineties probably, and I I started to notice that there was something really unusual and interesting going on in movie making, you know, independent movie making in the Arab world. That you know, I think because of a combination of um, a great number of political crises. Uh, and access to the means of production, a lot of people were making incredibly interesting and urgent work. So I just kept watching all of these movies for many years and you know, going back to Beirut and Cairo and you know, Damascus and other places to um, uh, learn about it. And um, the result is Hanana Cinema. And uh,
1: what did you find in your research in the in the, in the book? What were uh, some of the ways you tried to think that through?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I decided not to. Um, although I had I just mentioned to you the kind of overarching argument, which is that you know, because there you know because there is a state of crisis, it's um, uh, it gives rise to creativity if people have you know access to to equipment, but. Uh, Something I noticed more specifically is there's really kind of, uh, in a a lot of the most interesting work, there was kind of a lack of ideology, or like, you know, like, in a way, the politics of representation kind of faded away from some of the most interesting work, because people were just like, done with, you know, trying to, trying to represent a side, trying to... um, you know, put a good face on things, and you know all that stuff just kind of stripped away. They're able to work on really at a more fundamental level, and that that sounds kind of abstract. But for example, like the Lebanese filmmakers Joanna Hajitoma and Khalil Joreige, they made this movie two two years after the uh, the war between Israel and. Uh, Hezbollah, basically, that ruined all the Lebanese infrastructure and just kind of destroyed the country. They invited Catherine Deneuve to come to Lebanon and travel to the south with the uh, artist and actor Rabia Mroué um, to see the devastation for herself. They thought, if we bring like the spirit of cinema to Lebanon, you know, It'll be as though the world sees what's going on here. And they called the film uh, Je veux voir, I want to see... Things like that. Um, I'm thinking.
1: I had a chance to take a class once with uh, Ilya Sullivan, uh the Palestinian filmmaker. And, and in the way that you talk about it, it there's a loaded uh, politics in the air, but there's a levity and a touch in the uh, aesthetic approach to the mm-hmm, work and mm-hmm. how to handle that material. That mm-hmm. seems really quite uh, interesting in his work, but also mm-hmm. in the filmmakers that you're talking about. Are there others that are that you're particularly interested in in terms mm-hmm. of the work coming out now?
2: Yeah. A, a a great many. Oh, to ma- I'll mention a couple others. Uh, Sharif El Azma is an Egyptian experimental filmmaker, and he really thinks of himself as a filmmaker. Like, and is interested in you know, <laughs> like sixteen millimeter and eight millimeter. He's also interested in uh, psychogeography, and he's done some psychogeographies of Cairo and. Um, you know very experimental work that really deals with uh, disruption on a psychic level, like as as a result of things like uh, political violence, surveillance, you know desperation, but like how it how it shows up uh, somatically. So Sharif's work is amazing. One of my favorite Really, one of my favorite filmmakers in the world is uh, Mohamed Suwade, who's a Lebanese um, documentary filmmaker. He started out uh, as a media journalist during the Lebanese Civil War, so that's how he got his you know, training in video. But he makes these kind of fabulative documentaries, you know, ver- which are very, very cinematic, because he's a real cinephile. So one that I like very much is um, it's called "My Heart Beats Only for Her," and it traces this kind of unknown history of connections between um, uh, Fatah, the Palestinian group, and um, the Viet Cong. But he and how like um, Palestinian Lebanese uh, fighters in the seventies actually went to Vietnam to train as guerrillas. So he's got this amazing history, but it's filtered through an invented story of this uh, cinephile whose father was one of these fighters. And there's a lot of references to Lily Marlene. Um, who's that filmmaker? Not sure. The German filmmaker... The marriage of Fassbinder. Ah, ah, <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> so, like, it's it's a deeply, deeply cinephilic, but it's also this, you know, crazy true history of like, you know, global uh, connection among you know guerrilla fighters. So, Mohammed Suede's work is great. I mean, I could tell you about a lot more.
0: I wanted to ask you. You mentioned just briefly now the term like fabulation. And I think that's such a fascinating concept. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about
2: what you find interesting about that. Yeah, I find a, a lot of documentary filmmakers do end up fabulating. And it's really a strategy, I think, that should only be used when all other means are exhausted. So like when you've tried as hard as you can to you know, discover the truth of something or to, to make... You know, to make something happen politically, for example, you know, fabulation, it's this term, that, uh term from Deleuze and guattari of uh, turning, uh, turn, turning fiction into reality, kind of performing something into existence. I love it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you you see that in um, in a uh, couple of the, actually yeah the the first film I mentioned you know, they actually, you know by t- bringing Catherine Deneuve to see the you know ruins of southern Lebanon they kind of fabulate um, a new position for Lebanon on the world stage at least in cinema.
0: Yeah, I, I love the technique. I find it so fascinating. Mm-hmm. The first film I saw that did that was The Watermelon Woman. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great use of it. To. Cheryl Dunier. Exactly.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I love it. Um, uh, on your book, um, Enfoldment and Infinity in Islamic Genealogy of of New Media Art, uh, back in 2010 with MIT, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about uh, that project. Mm-hmm. Now it came to be clearly you'd already been writing and thinking about this a lot. But. Yeah.
2: Yeah, it actually came to me in in the mid to late 90s. Back when uh, you know, new media art, meaning like digital media art, was a very new thing. And uh, I was noticing that the vocabulary for talking about it was, was very poor and very kind of futurist. And I thought, oh, this is this is a very kind of lame situation for art. Let's <laughs> let's let's look around the world to some you know art historical parallels for what is going on in this new medium. And uh, you know, I thought for like a minute or two, it's like, hmm, indigenous art. Hmm, hmm. And as soon as I thought Islamic art, it was like, of course, you know, bingo, because it's an art form. Um, you know, tri- of course, there's a huge amount of variations, but that often avoids figuration in religious art, and then and instead uses a kind of code to generate images that are performative, which is just what digital media do. Like sometimes we do get a you know figurative skin on the surface of the image, but that's like an effect of this performance of the code. So I had this realization, and I thought, oh my God, I have to learn the histories of Islamic art And Islamic philosophy, and I should study Arabic. So that took me about fifteen years. (laughs) 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 Um, But it was it wasn't, and it was it was a super geeky thing to do. And uh, I I had you know very little you know sympathy or support (laughs) for the project. (laughs) But it ended up being very rich. And the more I studied, um, you know, historical periods in Islamic art and the, uh, in different places and the kind of you know philosophies or ideologies and, and sciences um, of those periods, I discovered um, quite different variations. It's like, you know, you know, what's going on in the Abbasid Caliphate in around the year uh, 1000 in terms of theories of the, the point or the min- minimal part Is one thing what's going on, like in the Safavid Empire in Iran, in the 16th century, having to do with like, you know, Sufism and the imaginal, is another. I could say a lot
1: more about this. <laughs> How has the reception of the of mm. the book been both mm-hmm. in terms of in the in the West, but also uh, within mm-hmm. uh, Islamic communities uh, in, in 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 the Arab world as well?
2: Yeah. It, it's been a very interesting reception. You know, I intended the book as a kind of gift to um, makers and scholars of new media art <laughs> it's like hey everybody good news you know we have roots in uh in like in islamic art and philosophy <laughs> um <laughs> yay. Uh, but you know um uh to my slight surprise most people were you know not that interested i mean i you know i just like i you know i just put a great big bracket around you know islamophobia and Ignorance and you know cultural narcissism because it just it just bores bores me to hell. So I just pretend, and it's not that I pretend that doesn't exist, but I just like act like people will be a little bit you know more open. Uh, So anyway, so that was a very slow burn. Although you know a lot of those, a lot of new media people have come around, and actually also contemporary artists who have. Uh, no connection to the Muslim world, but who really like my theory and method of unfolding, unfolding aesthetics. So that was okay. Among historians of Islamic art, a uh, very conservative field, a lot of them thought what I was doing was just incredibly like speculative and weird. So a lot of them you know, will not touch me with a 10-foot pole, but a few of them actually kind of like what I do. The nicest surprise was that you're actually not not my first intended audience, but uh, uh, artists and practitioners with m- Muslim backgrounds. They were the ones who were contacting me a lot. A lot of people were writing to me or getting in touch and saying thank you for bringing together these two things in my life that I've always held separate. You know, digital media and you know my Muslim heritage. And uh, one of them was Azadeh Emadi, an Iranian uh, new media artist who was doing her PhD in uh, New Zealand and asked me to be on her committee. And uh, we ended up founding um, our secret society, <laughs> uh, which Paige actually knows something about. uh yeah. <laughs> The Substantial Motion Research Network.
0: Yeah, it's a great network, and I, I got to participate in one of the workshops the network put on that you led, Laura. Maybe you can talk more about what the goal of the network is mm-hmm. and, and how it's global. It's a global network.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Substantial Motion Research Network... Uh, gets its name from a concept of uh, Sadr al Din Shirazi, the seventeenth century um, Persian philosopher, that everything is constantly transforming from within, according to a pull from without. He says it's God, so Azadeh and I you know, changed it a little bit to be like you know, the world. But this is the the motion of substance. So, so substance is an illusion. Everything is under constant transformation. So, Azadeh had the idea. Let's let's call our group that because each of us, you know, our practice and our ideas will be transforming according to the feedback we get from each other, which is really true and so a lot of the people in the group some are artists some are scholars a lot are interested in um, non-western media genealogies like what I set out in enfoldment and infinity so a lot of people are specifically interested in um, Islamic genealogies of what appear to be you know contemporary media but because we have this you know this kind of method in place that I you know, devised. Um, people can use this method for other genealogies, like a South Asian media genealogy, or an East Asian media genealogy, or a North African, or or Indigenous, um, or Eastern European. So actually, there's a lot. A lot of people in the group are working on these genealogies from you know different you know cultural perspectives. Other people are, are more interested in the, um, the method, which is basically, a, it's ba- I think of it as like a, a Shiite method of drawing the hidden out um, into uh, revelation or whatever. So like un- unfolding stuff. So people are interested in uh, unfolding um, what is unfolded you know, often in their art practice. So yeah, in the in the workshop that you did, Paige, um, which uh, Siying Duan and I led at Vivo, the idea was, I think we called it um, de-westernizing your media practice. Yeah, that's what it was called. Mm-hmm. And the idea was, you know, people have these projects in mind and, you know, most people, most, like, media artists or scholars have, like, go-to theories and methods that because of our education... They're mostly based in Western Western thought and Western art. So we introduced some techniques to kind of, you know, open your mind and uh, do a little bit of uh, brainstorming.
0: Yeah, I found it very useful as an artist. Mm-hmm. I, I really It really helped me develop the project that I'm working on. and And yeah, it was really useful because everyone in the group had a different experience and background. So everyone was able to contribute. And yeah, I mean... It worked very well for me so I, I think the the it's kind of like um like a methodology or a, a mode of practice that you can apply to lots of different types of things but uh like specifically as an artist you can apply it so well I think so yeah mm-hmm. I, I love the the method <laughs> can you uh, can you Tell us about one of the one of the things that you ended up pursuing. Yeah, well, in your cow movie. Yeah, so I'm making a movie about cows, and um, I came to the feral cows. Yeah, feral cows.
1: Really feral cows.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It eats seaweed. Yeah, everyone
0: knows about it. And I I went to the workshop hoping to learn the methodology and apply it with um, indigenous. Because the cows live on the land of indigenous people from British Columbia. So I was looking to maybe use some different methodologies from their um, practices and history. And But one thing that I was really inspired by was the idea that, you know, we can, we can be inspired and draw from a variety of cultures around the world. So we talked about, because everyone in the group had different experiences, so we talk about... People like one of the group members was Persian. So he talked about his experience and then the person you were co-facilitating with. She had an extensive study in Chinese culture. So one thing that she talked about that I really loved was this concept that the world started in the womb of a cow. Mm-hmm. And that directly inspired how the film's going to begin. And, and yeah, so, yeah, I learned so much. <laughs>
2: That's great. Great. So, and why, why not bring a, a Taoist yes, concept? Yes to your documentary about feral cows (laughs) off the West Coast. Yeah, Laura,
1: I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit about what you're currently pursuing in terms of of, uh, research, given all of your different Mm -hmm. interests. I'm I'm sure you're starting to read on a new project, or Mm -hmm. uh, what are you up to now? Yeah,
2: well, I'm um, I'm actually finishing a book on unfolding, unfolding aesthetics that... um, pursues i'm, I'm intending to, this book to be a book of practical philosophy that everybody's going to want to use and my joke subtitle is uh from your body to the cosmos in six easy steps <laughs> so it's gonna be like a a self-help book for building cosmic connections And it's going to have a lot of art in it, and it's going to be uh, absolutely packed with interesting stuff. But basically, it's the fruit of the most um, interesting finding I made when researching on um, Enfoldment and Infinity is, well, it was a hunch that uh, a huge amount of European thought is actually built on Shiite thought. The Shiite intellectual tradition. I think this is one of the, like the biggest, deepest secrets of so-called Western culture. So, this book is uh, drawing out that connection. So, part of the book is is going to be like um, you know very hermetic in that way of doing this thing that seems you know really unpopular and weird. But at the same time, I want the book to be very popular and accessible. So I'm working on that. I think it's the writing, the writing style is got to be part of it. And there's uh, an additional part, or like my very newest research direction, which connects to this idea of um, from your body to the cosmos. And in turn, um, to my work on embodiment, which is kind of my very longest standing work that is media environmentalism and specifically I don't know if you know about this page am uh, I think oh, I, I know that
1: you are attending a lot of protests and involved mm-hmm. in meetings and things like that <laughs> yeah the- oh uh
2: you know the, the specific thing that I want to um draw people's attention to is uh, the carbon footprint of streaming media Oh, I yes. do know about yes. this. Yes. Yeah, it is like, a, it's like the big, it's the elephant in the room, and especially for us who are makers and scholars of media, it is a total scandal. So my work now is uh, mostly in really practical ways to draw attention to this problem and um, posit some solutions. I've started working with uh, a colleague in the engineering department to sort of translate some of the engineering literature researching this problem to kind of plain language. Uh, But basically, if things keep going the way they are now, which is this massive acceleration of um, use of bandwidth and this increase in uh, demand, in giant quotation marks, for like high... Uh, high-resolution streaming media. And if the means that IT, that engineers are proposing to make this stuff more energy efficient um, does not suffice, then in 2030, something like 20.5% of greenhouse gases will be the direct result of streaming media. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it is like it is really serious. So I'm actually doing a lot of I'm starting to do a lot of activism within my you know professional group, um, cinema and media scholars. But I'm also with some colleagues at SFU, including including the wonderful Dave Biddle, starting the Small File Media Festival
0: what will nice. that entail <laughs> yeah drum roll please
1: the small media festival small file, darling. small file, file. small yes. file i got it wrong
2: isn't that uh, going to be great yeah. so wait what, yeah. what does that entail what does that mean exactly it is going to mean that every every work so it's going to be a streamable festival because like of course we're trying to promote uh, people to not stream and instead either just like tell your friend about the viral video or like rent a DVD or get it out of the (laughs) library or go to the movies, things like that. Um, But if you must stream, I want to make it really attractive and sexy and modern to stream small files. I want like 4K and 8K to be so 2019. I want to make it like unfashionable. Because I really think that it's only it's only through, like, desire that people do things like this. You know, a few people will do it because, oh, I, I don't want to be a bad person. But most, you know, a lot of people do it because it's attractive. So I wanted to make it attractive to watch. It doesn't have to be low-resolution work. But, you know, it could be compressed. It yeah. could be, like, ASCII videos. It could be, um, you know certain ways to get the file size down to less than a certain number of megabytes per minute.
1: This is really interesting. We we had in the seat you're sitting in right now, we had a chance to interview Amitav Ghosh, who wrote the book, mm-hmm. The Great Derangement. And a lot of he talks about the production of art and culture, where the climate crisis is a kind of blind spot as a Mm -hmm. topic, and he's speaking specifically about the novel. But I know there are these other conversations going on around the travel associated with the Mm -hmm. art world, or Mm -hmm. even of academic life, going Mm -hmm. to conferences at UBC. It's a big... Uh, piece but it seems to be uh you know not just in terms of the the content but the whole kind of structures around the aesthetic world are being Mm -hmm. called into question Mm -hmm. like they are in other worlds as well
2: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well and uh, streaming media is something that uh everybody in the world who has you know a smartphone or access to a computer is streaming in fact you know often it's um people in, um, you know, unwealthy parts of the world who rely on it even more. Um, but it's just like an enormously taken-for-granted thing everywhere. You uh-huh.
1: might be streaming this podcast right now, in fact. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. it, well, it's it's audio, so that's not Yeah, audio that's not will be so, so, so
0: small, that's mm-hmm. the thing. And that's such an interesting idea for a festival, too, because when we think about the medium of film and media art and video making and moving images, basically, like, you know, we think of the materiality often of the celluloid itself, but we don't think of digital filmmaking in a material mm. sort of impact way because mm-hmm. they, there has been like a history of people thinking about, okay, what are the environmental consequences of celluloid and the chemicals and all of that? But now that it's not a very common art form in the sense of actually filming on that. But I don't know, that's so interesting to me.
2: Like, I, I, I want to attend. I want to
0: watch them. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well, maybe you can make a, make a, yeah. a small... Small file cow movie. For yeah, us.
0: exactly. I will think about it.
1: <laughs> so, so Laura, you're going to be uh, involved in a a conference, a gathering next year with the Substantial Motion Network. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk a little bit uh, uh, about that because by the time our listeners uh, hear this, it'll still be far off yeah. in the future. But great to give a little teaser now.
2: Mm-hmm. Happy to. Yeah. So I uh, was talking about the Substantial Motion Research Network earlier. Um, and we're this incredibly lively and very, very international uh, network. If you go to um, substantialmotion.org, the front page is a world map with dots for all of us. Um, and yeah, speaking of the carbon footprint of streaming media, we do have a video conference uh, once a month for two hours, where our members talk about their work in progress and get, um, and we're all packed into those little Hollywood squares of the streaming video uh, conference interface, which is very Do you very use sweet. Zoom or
1: Blue Jeans? Uh,
2: Zoom. <laughs> Actually, we, like we did some work to um, to try to find a streaming media outlet that um, was uh, energy conscious, uh, but none of them, none of them had thought about it. So we're just going to pay a carbon offset. But anyway, so we have these beautiful meetings where people get fantastic feedback on their work in progress. And uh, we started doing that in um, spring 2018. So the idea is after we've had three years for everybody to work on their stuff, we're going to meet uh, all together in person for the first time here in Vancouver. Oh, cool. Uh, for Yeah, <laughs> for both a symposium and an exhibition um, open to the public. Yeah, and uh, I think we're going to call it A Light Footprint in the Cosmos.
1: <laughs> well, well, thank you so much for joining us on mm-hmm. Below the Radar, Laura.
2: It was my pleasure. Thanks for your great questions. Yes, thank you. <laughs>
0: Thanks for joining us on another episode of Below the Radar with our colleague, Laura Marks. Dig into more of Laura's fascinating work by following the links in the show notes. As well, you can follow our show on Twitter at btr pod to keep up with our latest episodes. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Below the Radar.